Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. All righty. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I am as usual, Mike Brown, and this is... As unusual, Matthew Stockton. Yes, you are unusual. <laughs> How are things, Matthew? Things are good, thank you. That is a good thing. I like <laughs> it when things are good. Let's get to it. We've got a bit of a historical case this week. Dun, 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 dun. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor its parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. Victoria, British Columbia, on the rainy evening of Friday, September 29, 1899, on her way home from work alone, 44-year-old Agnes Bings walked across a railroad bridge cutting through the Songhees Reserve as she did every other night without incident. This night, however, would be her last. Somewhere during the 20-minute walk between her bakery on Store Street and the Bings family home on Russell Street, someone took her life. The next morning, Agnes Bing's body was discovered. She'd been strangled and her body mutilated. Her slaying has never been solved, although there have been a few suspects. Interestingly, including the world's most famous serial killer, Jack the Ripper, whose 1888 crimes also remain unsolved. This is Dark Poutine, episode 257, Unknown Monster, The Murder of Agnes Bing's. A 
According to the city's official website, Victoria, B.C., where this story takes place, is built on the traditional territory of the Lekwungen people. The Songhees and the Esquimalt nations are part of the East Coast Salish family and are descendants of the Lekwungen family groups. Lekwungen is the original language of this land. The Lekwungen people hunted and gathered here for thousands of years before European exploration, carefully managing the land through controlled burning and food cultivation. On March 13, 1843, Chief Factor of the Hudson's Bay Company, James Douglas, accompanied by the pioneer Roman Catholic missionary father J.B.Z. Bolduc, anchored off Clover Point in the Beaver. The next day, he selected the site for Fort Victoria. By mid-June, Chief Factor Charles Ross was busy at work constructing the new post. The Hudson's Bay Company founded the city of Victoria on March 14, 1843, as a trading post and a fort at the location the Lekwungen people called Camosac, meaning rush of water. From the Victoria Downtown Residents Association website, quote, Riches struck Victoria in 1858 when gold was discovered in the Fraser River. Almost overnight, the gold rush hit and the population of Victoria boomed. In six months, Victoria went from a fort town of 500 people to a bustling city of 20,000. To accommodate the new population, many old businesses and buildings you see today were first constructed. Victoria became the capital of British Columbia in 1886 when the colony of Vancouver Island and the mainland colony of British Columbia were merged into a single entity known as the United Colonies of Vancouver Island and British Columbia. Wow, what a mouthful. At the time of the merger, Victoria was already the capital of Vancouver Island and it was chosen as the capital of the new United Colony due to its central location and its established infrastructure including government buildings and a bustling port. Since then, Victoria has remained the capital of the province of British Columbia. But the original plan or was briefly was New Westminster. Yes, yeah. Get it? Like West, as in Westminster, UK? Yes, exactly. Right. Yep. Parliament buildings, Big Ben? Yep. That's, you know, Westminster. That's cool. Yeah. In 1899, when Agnes Bings was murdered, Victoria, B.C. was a small but busy city, still with a population of around 20,000 people after the gold rush. As it was the capital of the province and a port city, it was also a major center for trade and commerce. Here are some highlights of what life was like in Victoria in 1899. Architecture. Many of the buildings in downtown Victoria were built in the late 1800s and still stand today, giving the city a distinctive heritage character. Some notable examples include the Empress Hotel, the BC Legislature, and the Fairmont Hotel. The Empress is one of the great hotels here in Canada. It's beautiful, and it's very haunted, apparently. It's yeah. one of the most haunted hotels in the world. You've been to my place. I have, yeah. The designer who did my place? Mm -hmm. did the suites when they renovated the Empress. Oh, that's recently. really cool. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we were bad gays. We hired a straight man to, to uh, decorate our house. Oh, no. Well, that's, that's obvious, though. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Anyway, back to our highlights of life in Victoria near the turn of the 20th century. Transportation. In 1899, horse-drawn carriages were a common mode of transportation in Victoria, the city also had a streetcar system, some of which were powered by horses, while others were electric. The first automobiles were beginning to appear on the streets, but they were few and far between. Horses were still favored and more practical at the time as the city's streets were unpaved and the rainy climate of the West Coast often made the muddy roadways impassable by cars of the day. 
Economy Victoria's economy was centered around trade, with the city's busy harbor serving as a hub for shipping goods throughout the region. Fishing, whaling, and forestry were also important industries. Society Victoria had a diverse population with many First Nations people, Chinese immigrants, and other groups making their homes in the city. Social life revolved around events like balls and horse races, and many of the city's wealthy residents belonged to private clubs and societies. Politics As the capital of British Columbia, Victoria was the center of political power in the province. In 1899, the province was led by Premier Charles Augustus Semlin, who was succeeded later that year by James Dunsmuir. According to a 2019 article by Tristan Hopper in CapitalDaily.ca, Victoria still dwarfed Vancouver in both size and economic power, while it was already a city of high-end tea rooms and hilltop mansions. It also retained the gritty character of a dirt-roaded port city. Now Vancouver's a big city. Eat that, Victoria! Uh, I kind of like that Victoria still has that small-town feel. It's like Halifax in a way. Is it? Yeah. Uh, Halifax has definitely has a small-town feel to it, uh, as far as cities go. I mean... When I was in my youth, it was a big city, but... Yeah, uh, Victoria feels like a sort of mid-sized city. It's lovely. In the UK, in the, in the, like in the West Midlands or something like that. I think Victoria is lovely. I yeah. love it. It's nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Overall, however, Victoria in 1899 seemed to be a Canadian city with a promising future. Agnes Bings was born Agnes Augusta Carolyn Smith. It was probably Schmidt. She was born in Stralsand, Germany in 1855, and she moved to Canada in 1884. She married a 50-year-old railway man named John Bings when she was 33. Their son, Arthur, was born later. Tragedy struck when John suffered a debilitating stroke, after which he was unable to work. This left Agnes to become the sole breadwinner for the family. John's meager savings went toward the purchase of a small bakery at which Agnes became the proprietor, along with her half-brother, William Jordan, who acted as the baker. It was called the Pilgrim Bakery, and it was on Store Street near Market Square in Victoria, and Market Square is still there, so. Market Square, mm -hmm. Store Street. Yeah. <laughs> like, let's make it obvious. Hey, she was 33. When they were married, yeah. That's old for that time yes yeah and he, and he was he was 50 50 yeah like didn't people like drop at 60 back then he lived until he was 80 really so, well yeah, that's he, good he, that's good innings he died in uh an old then. folks home okay yeah yeah because back then like like 33 just feels old for somebody to marry mm -hmm. back then yeah I, I call it an old folks home because that's essentially what it was called in the papers i understand it is a senior citizens care facility now <laughs> But hey, if anyone sticks me in one, I'm gonna I want it to be called the old folks home. Yeah. Like that's what you think of me. My my friend Paul used to work cooking and he did shifts at a senior citizens care facility and he would say, oh, I gotta work today. And it was either he was DJing at a strip club <laughs> or he was working at this uh <laughs> senior citizens facility. And I used to ask him, Where are you working today? And he'd say, I'm working at the home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, we we lived at the edge of a field, mm -hmm. and sort of on the other side of the field was a place called the Strathmere Lodge. Oh. And um, whenever my mother talked about getting old when we were kids, my brother and I'd say, no, we're just going to give you a suitcase and make you walk across the field. Oh, dear. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't do that to my mom. No? No. Why not? I'd drive her. 
Despite working long hours at the bakery, Agnes came home every evening and without complaint acted as diligent homemaker, doting mother to her 10-year-old son Arthur, and caregiver for her disabled husband John. The Daily Colonist, a local newspaper of the era, described Agnes as industrious, hardworking, and eminently respectable. According to Agnes's business partner, her half-brother William Jordan, she left work that evening at around 7.30 p.m., the same time they typically closed up shop every day. Tristan Hopper's article in CapitalDaily.ca indicates that Agnes Bings had several options for getting home, including safer and better lit routes. She still opted for the quickest one, crossing the ENN Railway Bridge, which was located in the same area where the Johnson Street Bridge stands today. Agnes was carrying several packages and requested her brother William to accompany her, but he declined, claiming to be engrossed in a book. By this time of day, the sun had already gone down. Agnes had missed the streetcar she could have taken, but she hated to spend the seven cents that it would cost her when she could walk. So, despite the weather, Agnes set out for home. It was particularly dark, windy, and rainy that night, making Agnes's walk a little more of a trudge than usual. A sou'wester was blowing a gale and pelted down, making any travel, especially by foot, particularly hard going. Can you say southwester blowing a gale in your in, in your native language, please? Which which one? So do I have to be closer to Newfoundland, or should I be from the south shore of Nova Scotia? Do south shore first. Okay. A sou'wester was blowing a gale and rain pelted down, making any travel, especially by foot, particularly hard going. Oh, the Lord. And now do it in Newfoundland. By the Lord, tundra, a sou'wester was blowing a gale and rain pelted down, making any travel, especially by foot, particularly hard going. <laughs> I love these sort of, uh, the, like, uh, what do you call, I guess what, you, what you'd call them is, is like coastal, sort of the way people go sou'wester or sou'wester. Like, nor'easter. Yep, yep. And a sou'wester is just... Southwestern breeze. Yeah, a strong wind. wind. Yeah, <laughs> blowing from the southwest. As opposed to a nor'easter, which can be really nasty. And a sou'wester is also a hat. No. Yeah, it's a rain hat. It, it, you've seen the iconic <laughs> Newfoundland maritime hat, rain hat, that right. fishermen wear. That's a sou'wester. Wow. Yeah. So there you go. I taught Matthew something today. Doesn't happen very often. No. Agnes's route took her through the Songhees Indian Reserve. In 1899, the Songhees Reserve was located in the inner harbor of Victoria and was home to members of the Songhees First Nation. The reserve was established in the mid-1800s after the Songhees were displaced from their traditional territories on the southern tip of Vancouver Island as the result of colonial settlement and resource extraction. At the time, the Songhees Reserve was a small community consisting of several dozen wooden homes, a church, a school, and a few small shops. Most of the residents were engaged in fishing, shellfish harvesting, and other traditional activities, although some also worked as laborers and tradespeople in Victoria. Life on the reserve in 1899 was marked by poverty and marginalization, as the Songhees and other indigenous peoples in the region faced significant discrimination and dispossession under the colonial regime. However, the Songhees also maintained strong cultural traditions and social networks and worked to assert their rights and sovereignty in the face of ongoing colonial pressures. Today, the Songhees First Nation continues to play an important role in the Victoria area. It has been involved in a number of economic and cultural initiatives to promote the well-being of its members and preserve its heritage. 
The reserve has also grown and evolved over time and now includes a variety of housing, cultural, and community facilities. When Agnes did not arrive home at around 8 p.m., her husband John became concerned. She was nothing if not punctual, but the sound of the wind and rain and a quick look out the window at the nasty weather gave John pause. As the night wore on with no sign of his wife, John's anxiety increased. Being seriously disabled, John was housebound and could not get out to look for Agnes. Nor could he call anyone to inquire about her whereabouts as they had no telephone. John worried all night long, but convinced himself around midnight that Agnes had stayed behind at the bakery to wait out the storm, and he fell asleep. John woke at dawn, sick with worry. He was able to get word to friends and family in town, and William Jordan, who hadn't seen Agnes since she'd left. The friends and family, including Mr. Jordan, began looking for Agnes and notified the authorities about the missing woman. Victoria Police Constable Robert H. Walker took on the task of walking the route that Agnes typically took to search for clues about her disappearance. At around 9 a.m., while walking the ENN railway line that ran through the Songhees Reserve, Constable Walker made a horrifying discovery. The nude and brutally mutilated body of a woman matching Agnes's description. From the Victoria Daily Colonist, Quote, the body was at the bottom of the railway embankment about 10 feet below the rails and against the fence and a telegraph pole. There was not a stitch of clothing on it, and her hair was disheveled, showing that she had made a desperate fight for her life. Death had been caused by strangulation. The marks of the fiend's fingers and a rope or strap that had been wound around her neck being plainly shown. There were deep furrows on both sides of her neck extending from the back of the ears and meeting over the windpipe, and in these, her hair was tightly pressed, showing that it had fallen in the struggle she made to save herself before the strap or rope was applied. Not satisfied with taking a defenseless woman's life, the maniac, for such he must have been at the time at least, proceeded to mutilate the body of his victim. End quote. The dead woman's torn clothing was found away from her body, there was no blood on the garments, suggesting that they'd been removed before the mutilation began. This seems really extreme. It is very extreme. And it probably hadn't really happened before. I highly doubt any Victoria police officer had, had seen, seen anything like this. like this. No, obviously we'll get into it later. That's what makes this, this case so astounding is that of the brutality the of brutality. it. The brutality, and you said at the beginning of the show, it was, it was nobody ever found out who was, but anyway, let's go on. Yeah, and we'll see that comparisons were made to the crimes of Jack the Ripper. Hmm. So it's, it's really fascinating. According to the Times colonist, although of slender build, Mrs. Bings is said to have been, quote, strong and robust, and it goes without saying that she made a desperate struggle to save herself, not giving in until the rope or strap with which she was strangled had been tightly drawn around her neck, end quote. As well as performing the post-mortem, Dr. Fraser had attended the scene on the day of the body's discovery. He examined her in situ and noticed the other wounds, specifically to the rectum, vagina, and perineum. Agnes had been split open. There was very little blood, also indicating that she was deceased when the mutilation began. The doctor noted that 10 feet of the small intestine and 2 feet of the large intestine had been separated from the body entirely. The ovaries and womb were outside the body, but remained attached, 
The doctor surmised that some blunt object, perhaps a stick, had been used to tear the body in the way it was. He stated that, in his opinion, the killer could not have done such damage with his hands alone. What? The actual? Yeah, right? Oh, this um, is, like, so extreme. Again, points to, like, the crimes of Jack yeah. the Ripper. It was William Jordan who identified the body as that of his half-sister Agnes Bings. Little Arthur Bings was also present and confirmed the body was that of his mother. Oh no, he's like 10 years old. 10 years old. Why would they let him see it? I don't know. It was considered that robbery might be a possible motive for the crime. The Times colonist T.W. Patterson suggested in a 1989 article that initially, at least, the absence of two rings from Agnes Bing's hand led investigators to suspect that robbery was the motive behind her murder. Chief of Police Harry Shepard and Superintendent Fred Hussey of the Provincial Police leaned toward this theory, especially when they found the victim's purse, which was believed to contain six or seven dollars, emptied in the E&N yard on the eastern side of the harbor. This discovery also implied that the killer had returned to town. John Bings later suggested that Agnes had been carrying significantly more cash, between thirty and forty-five dollars. The investigators thought that perhaps Agnes had refused to hand over her purse to the killer, at which time the man had flown into a maniacal rage and killed her. Superintendent Fred Hussey. Hussey. There was a clubware store uh, in Toronto back in the day mm -hmm. called Shameless Hussey. Oh, my. Like, it was it was sort of like, you know, nice, tight, like, fun clothes, and they just they just owned it. And he, this massive sign just said, Shameless Hussey. I used to go shopping there with friends. I used to, like, uh, have a bit of a crush on Olivia Hussey. Okay. She, she was uh, a Juliet in the 1968 version of Romeo and Juliet, and she was also in Black Christmas. Sadly now, though, she and her co-star who played Romeo, have come out saying they believe they were abused as kids because she was only 16 when she was asked to do a nude scene with okay. him. Okay. So it, it's quite interesting. So now I feel like guilty for, you know. Well, yeah, you look back in those days like that and like Brooke Shields at like 14. Oh, that was horrible, yeah. 14 years old. Mm -hmm. um, okay, one other thing though. Yes. So she had 30 to $45 on her. Which yeah. Was probably a lot of money back then. Yeah. So I'm wondering if... The person responsible was kind of familiar with her pattern. Maybe that was a pattern. It, it isn't clear and it's not stated mm. anywhere that it was. Oh, time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Agnes's body had been found on the Songhees Indian Reserve. At first, local newspapers editorialized about the dangers of walking on the reserve. This fed into the already prevalent negative stereotypes about indigenous communities. Many local residents refused to believe that anyone of the native people on the small reserve could be responsible for such a horrific crime. If it was an indigenous person at all, they surmised it had to have been a person from outside the community. And there you go, right? Yeah. The, the difference between sort of the news yeah. and people in communities that know realities. Yeah. Right? It, we still see that today. There's right? always a spin. There's always a spin, and the newspapers, like, they... The media has been the worst for so many years in terms of stirring up this sort of stuff. I was working as a volunteer in a, in a home uh, right beside the school that dealt with special education students. And there was a fire. And I was a junior fire department at the time, so I had a hand in helping to get the kids out and making sure the fire department was able to get in and get out. And uh, my local newspaper interviewed me afterward, having heard that I was involved and I was a, 
a junior fireman. And I told them that the battery had been taken out of the smoke detector. Mm-hmm. And so it didn't matter because we were all there and we could clear people out. But what they said is the battery was taken out of the smoke detector to be used with the machinery that like they put a whole different spin on it. It was just like, there was no battery in the smoke detector at the time. It's what they do. So I had a friend, um, or knew somebody who was, she and her husband were famous actors. Yeah. They took in a friend of theirs who was very sick mm -hmm. and had a mattress delivered to their house. Sure. And they didn't want the person to be outed as being very sick because he was dying of AIDS. Okay. And the newspaper spin was that she kicked him out of the bedroom. Yeah. And they were, they were now sleeping in separate rooms when in fact they were being good human beings and bringing in a sick friend. Like it's just a, when, when you can, when you see it firsthand, when you know yeah. somebody who's quote newsworthy and you see the horrible spins and, and she just said to me, you just put up with it because this is the crap they do. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of a, a right wing rant right now about the media being liars, but honestly, you're not being told the truth, folks. Yeah. It, there's, there is always a spin. There's always a spin or, yeah. or it's a version of the truth at, yep. at, at, at best. Yeah. Um, yeah. The local cops felt the same way as the people in the community. It couldn't have been a local indigenous person. According to T.W. Patterson's article, one police report stated, quote, Indians seldom or never commit murder without provocation and do not mutilate the body the way Mrs. Bings was, end well, quote. That's a good thing that yeah. the police are doing there, just sort of being honest, right? Exactly. From the Times Colonist, police were originally attracted to Charles St. John, a 31-year-old laborer from California. When they observed him acting strangely in the E&N yard, the train yard, on Store Street, apparently only 10 yards away from where Mrs. Bings's purse was found, St. Charles was interrogated after a thorough medical examination. Apparently, he had quit his job as a woodcutter on Callwood Farm and hiked into town, prompted by, quote, some illusion. Having existed on nothing but bread and water for days, his cure for leg cramps, weird, he had divided his time between his father's View Street Cottage and Beacon Hill Park. Reluctantly, police concluded that he wasn't their murderer. More after a quick break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And we're back. Matthew, what are your thoughts so far? I want to talk about this Charles St. John. Yeah, okay. That you ended with before the break. Sure. 
uh, why do you, again, probably with time, you couldn't find anything. Why did they quickly conclude that he wasn't the murderer? Um, who knows? It could have been, he wasn't around at that, at that moment or something or. Because, you know, you, you mentioned he was prompted by some illusion and I'm starting to, and they, they did like a medical test on him first. So obviously there was something wrong. They thought, they thought he might be in the, in some sort of psychotic episode. Yeah. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm thinking that as well. And I'm, and I'm thinking, you know, this sort of mutilation you know, nobody's been working up to that in the area. Maybe, maybe it's a complete psychotic break, right? Yeah, exactly. And maybe this like guy... we saw in the bus yeah, episode. Yeah, and maybe this guy did it. Yeah, could have been. Yeah, but there are so many suspects. I know. <laughs> we're, we're gonna we're gonna meet some more. Yeah, we're gonna meet a bunch more. Only days after Agnes Bing's slaying, there was yet another murder in the small city, according to an article by Richard Watts at the Times Colonist newspaper. On the second day following Agnes Bing's murder, two unknown men assaulted 39-year-old Mike Powers, the operator of Garrick's Head Pub, which is still in operation today on Bastion Square, making it one of the oldest pubs in Canada, having been in operation since 1867. From the pub's website, in an article titled Mike Powers Wouldn't Talk by Cecil Clark and published in the Islander magazine, pages 7 and 8, the Daily Colonist, January 23, 1972. Quote, It was about 3 a.m. on Sunday morning, October 1, 1899, as Mike stooped to unlatch his front gate that something struck him from behind. A towel wrapped around five pounds of sand caught Mike on the back of his neck and upon contact split open, drenching him with its dusty contents. Police later learned that Powers' attackers were two people, one possibly a woman dressed as a man. It was the male attacker who'd apparently been wielding the sandbag, after which, in a frenzied rage, he'd proceeded to kick Mr. Powers into oblivion, end quote. Mike Powers passed away four days later at the Jubilee Hospital from a ruptured liver, and the attackers were never found and brought to police. The motive was not robbery, but it was suspected that Mike's former wife and her lover had decided to demonstrate their hatred of Mr. Powers. Weird. This crime also remains unsolved. This one sounds like it's completely unrelated. But think about it. Yes, it most likely 100% unrelated. Either that or somebody maybe thought he did it and took him out. It could, oh, have, been, could have been that. That's true. The motive isn't clear. Uh, so now the Victoria police, this tiny little town, have two murders to deal with. <laughs> As resources in the small city were already stretched thin, an investigator from the famous Pinkerton National Detective Agency, resident superintendent James Nevins, was brought in to aid the investigation of both the Bings and Powers murders. Nevins set to work right away interviewing witnesses and people who knew the victims, especially identifying several interesting suspects. I have this romantic notion of the Pinkertons. Me too. Uh, they're sort of these like handsome, mustachioed, swarthy, well-hung-in-tight-trousers. Oh, dear. Sort of detectives with embossed business cards on he heavy, elegant stock paper. I wouldn't have thought the well-hung thing. I mean, that, that wouldn't have entered not, me. Not that I've really thought about the Pinkertons before, <laughs> oh, or fantasized about them. Sort of like James Bondy types, but more handsome than typical James Bond. Sure, I picture them with the sort of the bowler hat <laughs> and a mustache with the curls at the end kind of <laughs> oh i don't i don't picture the curls i just picture more straight mustaches oh okay yeah a little not not as sort of pompous a little bit more like i don't grr 
Oh, you've thought about this deeply. I have, actually. <laughs> James Nevin's notes indicated that local investigators told him a psychic had done readings at the crime scene only days after the terrible events that killed poor Agnes. The woman was identified in newspapers as 21-year-old Miss Agnes Harris and had been living with her widowed mother on Milne Street in Spring Ridge. The young lady had stood silently, eyes closed at the crime scene for around eight minutes before she began describing a man and woman having an encounter on the train tracks. She described the man's clothing and said that he was indigenous. She said that there was a blur after the initial meeting between the two and the next thing the psychic could see was the killer wiping his hands on the woman's stockings. She claimed that her vision followed the killer from the scene of the crime back across the train trestle where he tossed the stockings into the harbor. They were never found. It's unclear whether said stockings ever existed at all. After disposing of the stained hosiery, the psychic claimed that the killer walked across James Bay Bridge where he tried unsuccessfully to steal a boat. The woman lost the man's scent somewhere around the Jones's boathouse. Nevins wrote, She's supposed to have the gift of second sight, and she has given an account of how the Bing's murder was committed by an Indian whom she claims is now in his village some 30 miles up the coast. She described the Indian and the details of the crime. I was somewhat at a loss to know what to say to them, as they evidently put some faith in this supernatural revelation, end quote. Doesn't this stuff just get in the way of proper policing? I don't know. Like, sometimes this psychic business, we, we can't discount it 100%, because sometimes it's like a broken clock is right twice a day. Maybe it's not an actual prediction, but it's like... Then maybe I could get a job helping the police, just kind of just going to any scene going, yeah, this happened, because I'll be, I'll be right twice a day. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know how Just it works. Just make up crap. Yeah. I mean, there are places, I mean, I'm going to talk about it in my next book. There is a place called the Windbridge Institute that looks at psychics and, and tests them for their veracity. Okay. Yeah, it's it's quite fascinating. Because I have a little bit of precognition. Oh, but well, I think we all do. I think it's because I'm sort of in tune, like, you know. And that's the I, thing. I, I and pay maybe, a lot of attention. And there. maybe that's what a psychic is. Maybe. Yeah. So anyway. We digress. Nevins, of course, spoke with William Jordan as well. The police seemed quite focused on Jordan as a possible suspect in his half-sister's killing. Nevins at first thought this attention was unjustified. On speaking with Jordan, Nevins discovered that he'd gone looking for Agnes that morning, even crossing the train bridge and walking right past where Constable Walker later found her body. Nevins found this odd as Agnes' corpse was only 10 feet from the tracks and in plain view. How could Jordan have missed her? Jordan was aware of the suspicion he was under, but denied any involvement in the murder. John Bings could not bring himself to believe that William Jordan had it in him to commit such horrible acts as those perpetrated against his dear Agnes. A disturbing bit of Jordan's history also came to light. Jordan was known to drink heavily and sometimes became violent when in his cups, and this had led to divorce from his wife around five years prior. A local man who'd known Jordan for some time had some other stories to tell. According to this man's account, Jordan had allegedly abused and physically assaulted his wife on multiple occasions, causing her to leave him eventually. He then entered into a relationship with his sister-in-law. Additionally, Jordan reportedly evicted his own parents from their home and physically attacked his mother. The man claimed that Jordan was not biologically related to Agnes and described him as having a violent temper and being prone to uncontrollable outbursts. Another individual, 
a neighbor of the Bings family, corroborated these claims and stated that Jordan had even made disturbing comments about the mutilation of women in South America by natives there. However, a conversation Jordan had with the owner of Smith's Saloon from... A conversation Jordan had with the owner of Smith's Saloon really stood out. From James Nevin's notes, quote, We went to Smith's Saloon on the corner of the street about 75 feet from the bakery. We talked to Smith. He told us that on the morning of the murder, Jordan came up to the corner and he was much excited and said his sister was killed. Smith laughed and Jordan turned on him very quickly and said, What you laugh about? I tell you she is killed. This was before it was known. But Jordan seemed to think that she must be killed because she did not reach home. Smith told us that Jordan was a heavy drinker who usually took rum and that he was very often in his place drinking. On the day of the murder, and also the day previous, Jordan had been in the saloon drinking. But since that time, he has not come into the house. Smith thought it was probably on account of his laughing at him. He might have gotten offended. End quote. All of this paints Jordan as a jerk, but not necessarily a murderer. A neighbor of Jordan's indicated she'd loaned him some reading glasses on the night of the murder, sometime after it is believed to have occurred. She said nothing seemed out of the ordinary in his behavior, and this effectively gave him an alibi, and he dropped further down the suspect list. So he sounds like an odious character, but probably not a murderer. Yeah. But... I like the word odious. Odious? I don't think it's used enough in... Uh, okay. In English. Odious. Odious. And maybe it is, it's reserved for only the most odious people. Yeah, I mean, this guy's odious. Yeah, definitely. So he was talking about... Yeah, so he talked about, like, uh, some South American Indian tribes as involving and, mutilation. And was this before she was discovered? Well, he said she'd been murdered before she was discovered. Right, but if my, like, for example, if my husband didn't come home all night... You'd say... I'd be like, he's... he's been murdered. Yeah, right. Right, like, or he's dead somehow. Yeah, so that was because after. if he like... was talking about that, like, because I was thinking there's no way a half-brother, like, owner, blah, like, would do that. You can't do that to somebody, you know. But then, you know, it's, if he said that, maybe he... Did it as subterfuge. Did, did that as subterfuge to try to like blame the blame the First Nations people. Yeah, exactly. Right? Mm. Yeah, but I I honestly don't think he's a good suspect. No, it's kind of he's kind of weak. Yeah. The next suspect was a man called Bob the Indian. Bob had been in town at the time of Agnes's murder. He was well known as an alcoholic and had been seen hanging around Townsend's shop drinking with his pals in the days leading up to the killing. This shop was very close to the bakery. What had brought Bob to the attention of investigators was when an indigenous woman claimed that Bob had threatened her a few days after the murder. He'd said that he would cut her up like he did that white woman, although Bob was drunk at the time he said this. In a conversation with Nevins later on, the woman continued to insist that the statement was true and that it had badly frightened her. Cops thought that if Bob were the killer, he'd taken notice of Agnes leaving the bakery alone and followed her from Townsend's. According to Nevin's notes, Bob had shown up at a house on the reserve early in the morning after the murder, and had asked to be let in so he could dry his clothes and that he was all wet and muddy. Police were called, and Bob was arrested for being drunk. 
The arresting officer, Constable Langley, told Nevins that there was nothing on Bob except a dull knife which had a hook, such as are used for cleaning a horse's feet. Nevins speculated such an instrument as this could have done the mutilation, but it was not considered at the time of Bob's arrest. Bob was turned loose and had since left town for a village 20 miles or so up the coast. Investigators noted the similarities between the psychic's description of the killer and Bob, especially that he'd gone to a village up the coast, as she'd said the killer had. Through an interpreter, a Chinese immigrant had told of seeing on the night of the murder a man running from the location of the later discovered crime scene who'd been, quote, quick in his movements, but he didn't fit the description of Bob the Indian. Nevins then went to see Mrs. Bales from Victoria West. She was claiming that on the night of Agnes Bing's murder, she was coming home from town. She started to cross the railroad bridge, but on entering the yards off Store Street, she noticed a man standing against the wall of the depot. For some reason, she was afraid to go on, so she turned out of the gate. She started to walk as if around by the other bridge, and when she'd come about two blocks, she turned and saw this man following her. Just then, four men came toward her, and she turned and walked close behind them. When she turned to look again, the man who'd been following her was gone. She decided to try the bridge again as the man was nowhere in sight, so she concluded it was safe to cross over. About the middle of the swinging bridge, she heard someone coming and saw a woman fitting the description of Mrs. Bing's. Mrs. Bales looked to see if the woman was someone she knew to walk home with her for company. Mrs. Bales and Agnes did not know each other. The woman passed Mrs. Bales and went a few paces, and Mrs. Bales kept up until she reached the path which turned off to her house to the right before the train trestle. Mrs. Bales had gone just a short way on this path when a man approached her. She said the man had a long overcoat and had a shawl or scarf tied over his face. She could not see his face and was unable to determine his race. The man headed the way that Agnes had gone. After four or five minutes, Mrs. Bales heard two screams and thought the voice sounded like a woman's. She was frightened by the sound and went on as fast as the dark night and bad road would permit. It was five minutes to eight in the evening when she got home. She said she could hear the woman walking over the trestle when the man had come up to her, but she noticed she could not hear the man walk on the board, so she thought he had rubber boots on. She was adamant that it was the same man she saw standing in the yards on the other side of the bridge when she'd first attempted to cross. The man was never positively identified. But if Mrs. Bales's timeline is accurate, she may have seen Agnes Bing's murderer and overheard the crime in progress as Agnes screamed. Investigators also learned of an encounter a local seamstress had in the same area the night previous to Agnes's murder. The rough-looking man had accosted the woman who was saved by two dock workers who shooed the man away. By November 13, 1899, there was a $250 reward posted by the city of Victoria for anyone who could help lead to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible for Agnes Bing's murder. Another man who prominently featured in Superintendent James Nevin's notes was named David MacDonald Gordon. Gordon was a 73-year-old drifter with a dark past. Despite this, he'd been briefly recruited as an auxiliary constable to help investigate the case on the morning of the murder. Gordon seemed to have intimate knowledge of the case that led authorities to believe that he may have been the true killer. Gordon tried to convince authorities that another man named Jim McCluskey was the real culprit, 
despite the fact there was no evidence that McCluskey even existed. According to Tristan Hopper's article titled Canada's Jack the Ripper, in December of 1899, Pinkerton dispatched an undercover detective, Agent Number 3, to befriend the suspected killer. During their conversations, Gordon would share extremely vulgar stories about his past, including stints as a back-alley doctor for sex diseases, crude vasectomies, and other procedures performed on Victoria locals. Agent Number 3 began to believe that Gordon was an insatiable sex-crazed psychopath with a likely trail of victims throughout the province. Although Bing's murder only came up once, Gordon clammed up and refused to discuss it, repeating only his belief that the mysterious Jim McCluskey was responsible. Gordon would later die from a pulmonary hemorrhage, and as he lay dying, he told Agent Number 3, if you ever kill a man, never let the blood of the man's head get on your clothes or even your hands, for it will never come off. As Gordon took his last breaths, he clutched the air and exclaimed, Oh my God, oh my mother, oh my God. And the detective held his hand until he died. Honestly, I think that guy is probably the most likely suspect. Okay. The way he was talking about disemboweling yeah. people and being involved in uh, yeah. backstreet medical procedures, surgical right. things. So, And he's kind of the last of the real suspects we're covering here. Right. You think it was him? I kind of do. Yeah, I think it was either him or the guy who was having episodes earlier. Yeah, it could have been one of those two guys. Yeah. The reward eventually grew to $750, but no one would ever claim it. And 750 bucks is a lot of money at that time. Mm, it's a lot of money now. Yeah. Some armchair investigators see strong parallels between Agnes Bings's murder and the canonical five murders of Jack the Ripper in Whitechapel, London, only a decade prior. The similarities in the M.O. and the state of Agnes's body upon discovery are difficult to overlook. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is. This, she, this person did rip her the way Jack would, removing organs and those kind of things. And some people argue, well, he took organs away, but not in every case. Mm -hmm. So... It wasn't just the mutilation of Agnes's body by someone who may have had medical knowledge that led to this line of inquiry. Maybe it's Jack the Ripper. The bakery was close to what was then the city's red light district. The district was known as The Point, and it was located in the area of Government and Chatham Streets, close to the Inner Harbor. At the time, The Point was a center of vice and prostitution in Victoria, and it was home to a number of brothels, saloons, and other establishments that catered to men seeking entertainment and companionship. The district was considered a notorious and dangerous area, and it was frequently subject to police raids and other attempts to clean it up. Despite these efforts, however, The Point persisted throughout the late 19th century and into the 20th century, and it continued to attract visitors and residents seeking thrills and excitement. Today, The Point no longer exists as a red light district, but the area remains an important part of Victoria's history and cultural heritage. Hmm. Jack the Ripper was believed to have targeted only sex workers. Perhaps seeing Agnes walking in the area, she'd been mistaken for someone like that. Yeah, but Jack the Ripper and Victoria? Well, here's the thing. <laughs> Some researchers have suggested that Jack the Ripper may have committed similar crimes in other parts of England, such as Leeds, Bradford, or Liverpool. These claims are largely based on circumstantial evidence and speculative theories. 
Other theories, however, propose that the Ripper may have traveled to other countries to continue his killing spree, such as Canada, the United States, or even Australia. And there's little concrete evidence to support these claims, of course. The idea that Jack the Ripper made his way to Canada might seem far-fetched, but there had been a previous claim of Jack the Ripper in Canada. From Victoria Daily Colonist on November 28, 1888, sometime after the Whitechapel murder ceased. Quote, Jack the Ripper makes his appearance in Montreal and threatens to murder Baker's wife. Montreal, November 27th. When the wife of Joseph Cloran, a baker of McCord Street, awoke this morning at 5.30, she found a man lying on the sofa in the sitting room. She hastened to telephone for the police and then demanded the man's business. He suddenly jumped up, drawing a knife from his hip pocket. He remarked, I am Jack the Ripper, and if you don't keep quiet, I'll silence you. Hearing a noise on the front stairs, the individual rushed through the rear door and escaped, just as four policemen entered the house. A search was instituted in the yard by the officers, but no ripper could be found. <laughs> so, you know? So... Was she just making that up? Or was that person just trying to scare her? Or... So with all of these things, right? Yeah. Jack the Ripper starts popping up. Yeah. In all these countries. Sure. Right? Uh, you just become the boogeyman. Yeah, essentially. He, he's become the boogeyman. So if, if a mutilation happens, it becomes Jack the Ripper, right? Yeah. And because he's the boogeyman, right? If, yep. If I just was got drunk and fell asleep on somebody's sofa and wanted to scare them, I'd be like, back then, I'd be like, I'm Jack the Ripper, just so they'd freak out and I could run out the door. Yeah, exactly. And, and maybe, well, also, Mike, I see a pattern here. Mm. She was also a baker. Baker's wife, yeah. So maybe the Canadian Jack the Ripper doesn't go after sex workers, but bakers. Because yeah. he got a bad bun. Oh, no. <laughs> so who killed Agnes Bings? There was never enough evidence to charge anyone for her killing, so her killer got away with the dastardly deed. As this was more than 123 years ago, it's extremely unlikely that anyone will ever be named with certainty in her death. Now, if you want to visit Agnes, you can find her grave at the Ross Bay Cemetery in Victoria, B.C. You'll find her headstone in plot section H94W26. Some say Agnes's ghost can still be seen on stormy nights walking her route between Store Street and her home in West Victoria. Now, speaking of supernatural, if you want to listen to a more supernatural take on this story, check out the Victoria-based podcast Seeing Dead People, on community radio in Sydney, BC, according to their show notes in the episode on Agnes, on seeing dead people host Nicola and psychic Darcy follow Agnes Bing's last footsteps to investigate her gruesome murder in 1899, end quote. And you'll find the link to the podcast in our show notes. Matthew and I had a little listen to N it. Nicola has a great voice. She does, yeah. Yeah, I really like her voice. Yeah, so check it out. Uh, like I say, it's, it's a show that I hadn't heard of, and in my research I discovered, and I thought they did a good job of it, covering the case it, from that supernatural. That was thing. a fun listen. Yeah. And that's it for episode 257, Unknown Monster, The Murder of Agnes Bings. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. 
The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at one 327 5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. All righty, let's listen to some voicemails. Here is our first one this week. Hi, uh, my name is Charlene. I live in Alberta. I just wanted to call. I just listened to your Gone Girl, and uh, I just got to your book. Uh, for Christmas. So it was really neat to hear you, Mike, uh, talk about it. And from your book, it's, that's exactly how I read it. So it was really cool. And I also really wanted to say, I have a love for Matthew. I don't know what it is, but just the love I have for him is just, um, you guys just, uh, make the worst days good just by your positivity and, uh, it's just, it's really nice to hear. So I wanted to share. Anyways, oh. I hope you have a great day. Bye. <laughs> oh, thank you. Oh, that was nice. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad we can make bad days better days for some people. Yeah. Some people we make bad days worse days. <laughs> some people call in and don't like us because we're cool and woke. <laughs> I don't even, like, I, I, I say we, that woke thing we said in the, in the, in the, Disclaimer, that's a joke. Yeah, and it actually offended somebody. It actually offended somebody who left a one-star review. They tried to call and leave like, you guys are being too sensitive and, and like you're, you're, being, you're pandering to oversensitive people. You know what? If you are offended that I'm compassionate, then you're the one who's sensitive, <laughs> ding-dong. Mr. Oversensitive. Mr. Oversensitive. <laughs> So who's the one who's the one who's triggered? Oh, it's you. I've got my kind of horse now. Nah, whatever. Anyway, thanks for that call. That was lovely. <laughs> Thank you. I like I like calls like that. Me too. Let's listen to another. Hi guys. Uh this is uh Riley here calling from Langley, BC. I've been listening to your show now since June of last year, and I'm on my third run through it on uh episode one hundred again. Um I myself have a great fascination with forensics and just true crime in general. So you guys really get me through the day and listening to all that stuff. I uh, drive truck around all day, so it's great to have you guys around. <laughs> um, I said I'm from Langley, but I'm originally from Brandon, Manitoba. And so the the episode on killing of Tim McLean really stood out for me. And I like to listen to that one quite often, actually. Uh, it's quite interesting. It's unfortunate, obviously, but... Um, yeah, so Matt and Mike, both of you, I hope you guys have a good one. Uh, don't get to say this quite often, so I'm going to take full advantage and, uh, ask both of you to go take a shit in your hat <laughs> and, uh, yeah, take care guys. Bye-bye. Thank you. I love the enunciation. Yeah. Go shit in your hat. Go shit in your hat. And guess what? He called back. Oh. Yeah. Because why not? If he wasn't done, then just call back. Just give it a listen. Hey, this is Riley calling again. I uh, missed one little thing in my last message. Uh, just that uh, I passed along your guys' show to all of my friends and a bunch of my family members, and I've had nothing but good things said back to it. And uh, your show was recommended to me from a good friend of mine, and uh, 
yeah, it just keeps getting passed along. I talk about it all the time, and I tell everybody I can. As I said before, take care and have a good day, guys. Bye-bye. Wow. So he called back to make sure that uh, he was letting us know that he passes on his love of the show. Good friends pass on dark poutine to friends. Yeah, that's nice. We really appreciate that, we Riley. Do. And maybe um, we'll meet you at a, at a meetup here in... Uh, or if you're driving your truck. Yeah, just drive by. <laughs> yeah, I have, a, I have a cousin that drives a truck in America, like all over, all over the United States. Yeah. I wonder if he listens to us. Well, if he doesn't, he should. He lives in Florida, near, near Diane, one of our listeners. He should do a Florida Man podcast. Yeah. Florida Man does something insane. <laughs> News at 11. News at 11. Um, here we have another voicemail. We've had a few this week. A few goodies. Hi, uh, this is uh, Dave from Saskatoon. Just uh, finished listening to your podcast, 254. Um, one thing I've never understood is that Mr. Big Sting uh, is how... Uh, how do people actually fall for it? Uh, 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 someone gets, uh, uh, you kill somebody. Uh, please don't have enough evidence to arrest you. And then all of a sudden you have all these new friends. I don't know. I just never understood exactly how, how these people can originally possibly get away with murder. And then... They get stuck it back in, and like like uh, uh, with me, no amount of money would get me to start confessing. If if all of a sudden someone, I get a whole bunch of new friends, and then they they want me to uh, do some confessing, I would get I would say no, I'm not interested in being part of your organization. But that's just that's just just me. But. Uh, <laughs> I I uh, l listen to you guys every Tuesday when I'm out at work because uh, I take Mondays off. So I uh, enjoy it. So go take a sit in your hands. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, Dave. I think Dave's called before. I think so. I, r I remember Dave's voice. Dave Saskatoon. Yeah, right. I love Saskatoon. Um, people fall for it for a few reasons. One, criminals tend to be not that bright sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and two... And I think that's what Dave was referring to. <laughs> it's yeah. true. Like if, if you're, you're dumb and you're, I'm like Dave, like, first of all, I think Dave and I probably wouldn't commit one of these crimes anyway. Yeah. But if we did, we'd probably be smart enough not to confess exactly. to, to a bunch of people. <laughs> exactly. Um, I like to think both of us are in that same boat. Yeah. But, but also, I mean, part of it is my worry is sometimes, even if you didn't do it, right? Mm -hmm. If if you were sort of colored with the crime because it was in the news, sure. we, we talked about this, mm -hmm. you're hard up, you don't have a good job, yep. you know, you've been kind of running with some of the wrong people sure. anyway. That's often the type of people that, that get fingered wrongly um, for a crime. Um, <laughs> for a crime, you I'm know, glad there, you clarified. There's, there's a desperation in quick money. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I think in some ways there there's a, a level of desperation uh, to get ahead after something went terribly wrong. Yeah. Right? Yep. All right. We have one more voicemail, and let's see who called us. Hi, Mike and Matt. I'm Amber. I'm originally from East Hampton, Nova Scotia, which is where when you did the episode of the free shooter in Nova Scotia. He was killed at an Irving that I grew up go 
into as one of my best friends is from Enfield and I'm from Lamp. Mike, you'll know where that is. Matthew, I'm not sure you will, but <laughs> I'm from a small town just outside of Toronto and my dad actually was friends with a victim and knew the killer of a different case. Um, in this past episode, you talked about the dark waters of crime. My dad actually went to Ormukdo High School there. So did my mom, where Pamela Bershkoff was killed um, and thrown into the Ormukdo River. Mm-hmm. Either way, go take shit you hat. A bun voyage or whatever. Enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> That's fun. So, yes. Yeah, I have no idea where you're talking Where East Hans is. Yeah, no, I mean... I don't, I, I half the time and please people don't shoot darts at me. I, I always mix up Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. And Newfoundland. Well, no, Newfoundland I've been to, so. No. <laughs> but um, the other two, I'm like, ah, I know that one's bigger than the other and one's more French than the other. New, New Brunswick is the only actual bilingual province It is like Canada. a proper bilingual yeah. province. Whereas Quebec is a French. French, French. Yeah. 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 Anyway. Thank you for calling, Amber. And Thanks, yes, Amber. of course I know where those places are. I've been to that big stop in uh, Enfield to get gas before I go back to the airport. So Mike super knows it. I super know it. <laughs> yeah. You're a supernova. Yeah. Anyway, that's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one 877 We'd love to hear from you even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. We've got a few patrons and donut Yay. money donors this week. A first up is Heather Bacos, or is it Bacos? It's B-A-K-O-S. I'm not sure which it is, but Heather. We don't know where Heather's from. At least I don't. I think Matthew does. Where's Heather from? Manitoulin Island. Where's that? Ontario. Okay. And what does she do on Manitoulin Island? You've never heard of Manitoulin Island? No. She is a captain of the Chichimon. What is the Chichimon? Look it up someday. Okay. It's the ferry that goes from the Bruce Peninsula to um, Manitoulin Island. And it's called the Chichimon. And when I was a little kid, I'd like have to wait until the ferries came to like drop people off. Because the front, the, it wasn't the back, the front opened. Oh boy. And and I like saying Chichi Mon. Chichi Mon. Uh, next up we have Susan Morris. And I don't know where Susan's from. She's from London, the UK London. Oh, the UK London. Yeah. And what does she do there in the UK London? She runs the museum of her great, great, great grandfather, William Morris. Oh, the cigarette dude. No, not that was Philip Morris. Okay. William Morris was a designer in the arts and crafts movement. Boy, am I an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> so arts and crafts movement that okay very beautiful he used to do wallpaper and stuff like that that's much better than cigarettes yes yeah, so she well you know you worked for philip morris didn't you no i worked for british american tobacco oh okay time. yeah so so susan looks after the uh the museum there you go thank you susan and next we have ashley harris from ottawa ontario ashley's in ottawa yeah she is I like to think a sort of member of the cabinet listens to us. 
But, oh, she's a member of, of, of Trudeau's cabinet. I yeah. wonder which minister. She's, she's the minister of um, podcasts. Oh, well, that's good. And she's going to make it mandatory for everyone across the country to listen to Dark Poutine. Well, they should. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it should be mandatory <laughs> listening. That would help us out. Thanks, Ashley. Thank you, Ashley, for, for making... Actually, it wouldn't help us out. It'd be like, it'd be like you two's getting the, the album in your, oh, yeah, in your that's iPhone right. without asking I actually it. had mine deleted. I it was like mine right away. Yeah, it was like, I don't want that. I did. People don't like stuff foisted upon them. No. And we have to get them to come to us naturally. That, yeah, that was a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thanks, Ashley. Thanks for trying, though, Ashley. Yeah, hope it works. Uh, next, we have our donut money donors. And first up, we have Brendan Carver from Victoria, BC, and his hometown is Prospect, Nova Scotia. And Brendan says, thanks for helping me su successfully navigate Monday mornings at work. Cheers to us new Nova Scotia transplants, keeping it real on the West Coast. Nice. Yeah. So uh, what does Brendan do there in Victoria, British Columbia? Well, he can listen to us while he works on Monday mornings. Yeah. So. He's probably a surgeon. He's a brain surgeon. Right? Yeah. He just, he just like puts it in, puts yeah. his earbuds in. And, and It's like, oh my God, I'm shocked. And, Oops, that guy can't and, talk and anymore. And does his very delicate surgery. Yeah. <laughs> because he likes my dulcet tone. Yeah, there you go. And next up, we have Chris Corbett, but I don't know where Chris is from. Chris Corbett? Yes. Daytona. Chris, Daytona in Florida. Yes. Uh, does he drive in the Daytona 500 or do, is he the guy who sweeps up the track? Neither. Okay. What does he do? He has nothing to do with the Daytona 500. That's no fun. Yeah. What, what does he do there in Daytona? Well, in Daytona, it's not what you do. It's, it's about what you don't do. Okay. And that's be part of the Daytona 500. Oh, so he makes a career out of not being involved in the Daytona 500. Yes. You know, there was a diner in Moscow when I lived there in the early 90s called the Svetzvost, the Starlight Diner. Yes. And all of us um, foreigners would go like three or four times a week, every weekend. Right? Yeah. And it got to the point where we'd be like, hey, after, where do you want to go? And everyone would go, not the diner. And I thought I should create a restaurant called not the diner. And then everyone would think that's where you're meeting and go. In Halifax, there was a bar called My Apartment. Okay. Let's go back to My Apartment. Yeah, there was, yeah, there was a My Apartment in London. Mm -hmm. There was also another bar uh, called Your Father's Mustache. Let's go hang out at your father's <laughs> Your mustache. father's mustache tickles my inner thigh. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> there, was a, there was a club near my place in London when I first moved there in Soho called Abigail's Party. Oh, cool. After the... We're the, going to Abigail's Party. Yeah, it was a party until somebody fell down the stairs and broke their neck and they closed. Oh, Jesus. No longer a party at Abigail's. Holy smokes. Yeah. Anyway, that's it for Patreon Thanks, and Patreons donut and money. donut money people. Yes, we appreciate we you. We do more than you know. Yes. <laughs> Thanks to all our patrons and donut money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at Patreon.com/DarkPoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 
If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode 257. We really appreciate you. And don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Go poop in your southwester. Your southwester. 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 Gale, go poop in your southwester. Okay. Because it's often a gale. Get it? Yes. Okay, bye. Bye. Her name is Elspeth. Elspeth Tassioni. You know her as the offbeat but brilliant defense attorney from The Good Wife and The Good Fight. You've been a very busy little bee. Buzz, buzz. Now she's in New York with the NYPD. This is very different. Better. But still using her unconventional ways to find the truth. You're trying to sniff me, Miss Tassioni? <laughs> Elspeth, new series Thursdays on Global. Stream on Stack TV.